Well, the, the policy of appeasement needs to be situated in, in context. Of course, uh, the most important reason why mainly Britain, but also to some extent France, uh, maintained a policy of appeasement facing the rise of fascism and Hitler was the memory and the impact of the great catastrophe of the First World War. So societies, British society, French society in particular, were uh, deeply marked traumatized. Today's guest is Dr. Angel Alcald. Angel is a lecturer in 20th century history at the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne. He received his PhD in History and Civilization from the European University Institute in Florence. He is an expert on the rise of fascism and the relationship between war and genocide. On the podcast, we discuss the rise and fall of the Third Reich. Angel had some fascinating insights, and I really enjoyed talking with him. If you like this conversation, review it with five stars on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify, or follow me on Instagram at Recorded Time Podcast. I hope you enjoy the episode. Why do you think Hitler sticks in the mind as the most evil of the dictators of the 20th century and what sets him apart from people like Mao or Stalin? Well, um, of course, the 20th century is a century of dictatorships. Many of the most powerful countries of the world throughout the 20th century went through periods of dictatorship, Germany, Russia, of course, uh, emerging powers later, China. Um, what makes Hitler, what made Hitler um, stand out from all this um, rise of authoritarianism in the 20th century probably was two things. One, the power of the German state in itself, uh, regardless of who were the rulers of this country or the political system in that country, Germany was a very powerful um, uh, nation state from the, particularly from the period of unification in the 1870s and particularly in the early 20th century. And the second thing that made Hitler stand out was the nature of Nazi ideology. Nazi ideology was a specific hybrid between um, different elements, anti-Marxism, of course anti-communism, anti-liberalism, anti-Semitism, a number of antis, and of course the influence of fascism as a, not not just an ideology, but a specific kind of social and political movement. And fascism as an ideology and as a movement was um, glorified 
violence, not just as an instrument, but, but as something that had value in itself. And this is a, a, a clear difference with all the dictators of the 20th century, ideologically, even though the ideologies and all the dictatorial regimes, uh, say the Soviet Union, communist China, also led to, to disasters, to, to uh, implementing revolutions that led to a massive loss of life. So do you think fascism is just more upfront about its intentions and indeed more proud of its intentions than, say, communism or more socialist dictatorships are? Uh, I wouldn't say fascism was more upfront about intentions. Um, in the case of, of the Nazi regime, the Nazis at some point were surprisingly open about what they had in mind, even though they used this kind of um, language that somehow masked the, the, the violence and, and, the, um, and the genocide that they, they were willing to implement. Mainly, I'm referring here to the extermination of European Jews, which was one of the crucial um, objectives and uh, ideological aims of the Nazis. So, even though the Nazis sometimes op uh, talked openly, particularly during the Second World War, about the need of annihilating or exter of exterminating um, enemies like the what they believed were uh, um, world Jewry as an ideological enemy of the Nazis. Um, they sometimes also um, were deceptive in the way they they pursued their their objectives. For example, if we can compare with um, uh, communist revolutionaries in the same period, uh, they um, pursuing of uh, in an international revolution was done uh, in a diff much different way. Different communist parties were created. They pledged allegiance to Moscow, etc. The uh, fascist movement and fascism as an ideology was also an international phenomenon, a transnational phenomenon, but um, being an ultranationalist phenomenon, um, fascism and, of course, Nazism could not operate in the same way. They uh, were much more um, secretive about their uh, international uh, contacts and, inter and international um, alliances. Sometimes it has been said that, for example, the Axis alliance was a sort of um, empty alliance that with no real content. It was, that it was just a matter of propaganda, while in reality uh, Japan, Italy, Germany follow their own nationalist aims. But in recent times, historians have started to, to find the uh, networks of contact, of ideological exchange, the transfers behind uh, this alliance, and this um, unity of... Um, fascism as an ideological and political phenomenon is 
becoming much more clear than before. So they weren't necessarily just friends of convenience, the Japanese and the Germans and the Russians? Definitely not just uh, for convenience or expediency. No, there was a real ideological bond between the countries that joined this Axis alliance on the eve of the Second World War. Obviously, in hindsight, this becomes uh, clearer. But do you find it strange that the European powers adopted a policy of appeasement uh, toward a man who, I mean, I think Hitler was obviously disguised his intentions to a degree, but I mean, even states in uh, Mein Kampf that, you know, there had to be a reckoning with France at some stage. Uh, Do you think it's strange that the Allies adopted a policy of appeasement against a man like this? Well, the the policy of appeasement needs to be situated in in context. Of course, uh, the most important reason why mainly Britain, but also to some extent France, uh, maintained a policy of appeasement facing the rise of fascism and Hitler was the memory and the impact of the great catastrophe of the First World War. So societies... British society, French society in particular, were uh, deeply marked, traumatized by the huge losses of the First World War. Millions of ex-combatants, disabled soldiers, uh, widows. Um, This disaster made societies reluctant to go into another armed conflict in Europe. So there was an interest to avoid the slaughter, the, the, the massacre. And at the same time, it was a pragmatic policy, particularly for the British. Now, this was, of course, based on a poor understanding of Hitler's ideology. Even if his aims were more or less clear in what Hitler himself published in Mein Kampf, as you mentioned... Um, still, they, they did not believe that these claims um, by, by the Nazis couldn't be handled by peaceful means. Chamberlain, the, the British leader, used to argue that no disputes between nations could not be settled by peaceful means. Everything could be solved by peaceful means, although... Of course, this becomes increasingly untenable throughout the 1930s, not only because of the rise of Germany, also Imperial Japan invaded Manchuria 1931, fascist Italy uh, invaded Ethiopia in 1935. So the reactions of Western European societies to this challenge is, is mixed. There is a crisis also of pacifism, as I believe, It's interesting to see that, for example, in France, extreme right parties uh, presented themselves as pacifists and argued that Italy, fascist Italy and Nazi Germany should be given what they were claiming to to obtain. So that was a very complex uh, context. One also needs to take into account that um, Hitler used a, um, a very cunning language of talking about peace. He presented himself, himself as the guarantee for peace in the, at the European continent, while at the same time preparing Germany for war. Uh, 
But the discourse that the Nazis offered to uh, Europeans was a discourse of peace, particularly in the 1930s. One can think, for example, of the Olympics in Berlin, 1936. These Olympics, Olympic Games, they start in uh, July, August, 1936. And Hitler presents Germany as a country that is uh, powerful, prosperous, but also peaceful. What they are doing at the same time is to start sending uh, military aid to fascist and military rebels in Spain at the beginning of the Spanish Civil War. So they were funding uprisings from within uh, other yeah. countries. Right? Yeah, that's that's uh, that was happening also by by Mussolini by fascist Italy. They were also promoting instability in certain other regions of Europe. So what do you think are the overarching causes of the Second World War? What what events between 1918 and 1939 uh, do you think led to the second conflict? Mm. Well, um, one can look at these origins of the Second World War in many different ways. Um, the sequence of events is well known. Um, a, a conventional, traditional narrative will say that the um, flaws of the Versailles Treaty are one of the... R- root causes of the Second World War. Um, but this narrative also puts too much emphasis on on the nation state, on the history of German in particular of Germany in particular, coming from unification through Bismarck, Germany as a growing power. <clears throat> but I will say there were broader transnational phenomena happening at the same time, particularly an overall rise of authoritarianism. It's not just that uh, Germany had been humiliated by the Treaty of Versailles and then further humiliated by the Great Depression and the economic consequences of the Great Depression. There was already um, in Europe since the 1920s, very early, a rise of anti-liberalism, authoritarianism and fascism in Italy 1921-1922 there is a clear rise of an extreme right movement that is destroying socialism but also challenging liberal democracy and it and this movement becomes successful in October 1922 with the uh, seizure of power by Mussolini this had an impact also on uh, other extreme right groups like the Nazis in Germany. Do you think that dictatorships in general manifested themselves in the 20th century uh, in part because it was a transformation of uh, monarchical power? All the monarchies uh, were eventually coming to their end by the start of the 20th century, Mm -hmm. or at least their power was waning. And do you think dictatorship uh, or authoritarianism in general filled that void uh, of absolute power? Well, it's true. There, there was a tradition of charismatic leadership, I would say, more than um, uh, monarchies um, that we can see, for example, not only in uh, the, the rule of empires, how empires were, were ruled at the time, particularly the big continental empires, uh, 
the Prussian Empire, the Russian, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, there is this uh, longing for a charismatic leader since the beginning of the 20th century, important in, in, in Germany also, uh, after the experience with uh, Bismarck. There are still people who believe Germany needed a strong leader. And they will see Hitler as a continuation of a tradition of charismatic leadership that comes from, from uh, Frederick the Great. But in other countries you, you also find uh, this modern version of... Um, charismatic authority developing, for example, in um, Spain, a country that was a monarchy but also finds its dictator, Primo Rivera, in the early 20s. So monarchies had, of course, there is important historical connections between the tradition of um, um, monarchies and monarchs as rulers, and the dictators, the much modern dictators that came later. But at the same time, one cannot ignore the fact that it was the, the destruction of various empires, four empires, as a consequence of the First World War, which created a much more complex context of rise of nationalism, of the idea of the homogeneous nation-state, to replace this loss, this fall of um, empires and monarchies. I'm referring to, to the, the, of course, the German Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but also the Ottoman Empire and the Russian Empire. Uh, do, do you think that, back to the causes of the, the Second World War, was the Treaty of Versailles unnecessarily punitive or was that just how it was represented to the German people by Hitler? Well, that's a very good question, and um, the conventional answer will, will of course, blame this uh, punitive character of the Treaty of Versailles, particularly with regards to the reparations imposed on Germany, uh, which had economic consequences, uh, leading later in 1923 also to problems of hyperinflation, the context of 1923, the, the occupation of France um, by France of the region of the Ruhr, um, and in this context also, lead this context also leads to the rise of nationalist paramilitarism in Germany. So we can see these direct connections with the context, uh, allowing for the rise of fascist movements and the Nazis. But at the same time, I mean, I don't like to exaggerate the impact of this punitive treaty. For example, if one looks at the treaty that was signed after the Second World War, peace treaty, uh, with Italy. Italy was a defeated country. There was a treaty in 1947. And in this treaty also, uh, Italy had to pay reparations, had to also uh, return territories to other countries. But this was never read as a humiliation that will 
necessarily lead to in the same way the Treaty of Versailles was for exactly. the Germans. It it it's not so simple the the connection. In fact, also we we cannot forget that in the mid 1920s all this settlement of Versailles is somehow revised by new treaties by new uh, new processes of negotiation between different powers. This is the so-called Peace of Locarno in 1924, 1925, with a reconsideration of the uh, depths uh, of war and the reparations, mm. etc. And this was also in the mid-1920s, the golden age of the Weimar democracy in Germany. Mm. And that's, I, I agree, that's partly why I've never, uh, well, I've always thought that the impact of the Treaty of Versailles is somewhat exaggerated, also because, uh, of course, uh, the Allies, America and uh, various European powers, were uh, helping uh, the Germans meet their reparation targets. So, yep. yep, good point, yes. Uh, and I will add even more things. Uh, well, uh, the, sometimes the rise of fascism is presented as a consequence of this humiliation of some nations in Versailles, particularly Germany and Italy. But the fact is that the Italian fascist movement, which was the original, the first fascist movement created, was founded in March 1919, months before the signature of the Versailles Treaty. Mm. Fascism was rather a reaction to uh, the rise of Bolshevism, a reaction to the Russian Revolution of October 1917, not to the system of Versailles. How do you define fascism? Just moving forward to give a bit more context to the podcast. Mm. Well, there, there have been uh, for decades uh, heated discussions among historians about a definition of fascism. And, well, I, I as a historian, I... I I don't feel the need of defining um, with a single sentence what fascism is. Now, I, of course, look at fascism primarily as an ideology and as a movement. And as an ideology, one of the key characteristics of fascism is that it changes a lot over time. So it emerges as an ultranationalist, anti-Marxist, anti-Bolshevik reaction, a violent, violent reaction against the uh, real or imagined threat of revolution. So, and the key elements are clear. There's this ultranationalism, this anti-Marxism. Those two elements are crucial. Anti-Semitism wouldn't be a fundamental factor in the original ideology of fascism as it was defined in Italy by Mussolini but it's just and others. it's just become synonymous with fascism because of Hitler yeah and even uh, the, one can find earlier connections between anti-semitism and proto-fascist movements in other countries in France in the uh, early 20th century for example after the Affaire Dreyfus, at the end of the 19th century. This was a scandal that led to a huge confrontation between the, the, the extreme right, the tradi traditionalist right in France, 
and more progressive forces. And it was all about the role, the, 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 about anti-Semitism and the uh, scapegoating of Jews uh, in, in the French nation-state. So, of course, anti-Semitism was an element that was already present in these uh, small groups of small political parties of the extreme right in the early 20th century. Now, of course, Italy, fascist Italy, will become later, will adopt later ideas from the Nazis, and fascist Italy will eventually implement also anti-Semitic policies as an inspiration from the Germans. So how would you, in more of a, a concise way, what, what are, how, how would you define fascism? What are the defining elements of it? Nationalism? Yes, uh, fascism is an ultranationalist ideology that glorifies violence uh, not only as a means but as an end in itself that glorifies war and that uh, uh, pursues a rebirth of the nation through the um, exclusion and sometimes annihilation of groups that are not believed to belong to this ideal vision of the nation. So war and violence isn't uh, just a means to an end, but considered a natural state of existence? Um, in a sense, yes. Um, there are clear connections between the experience of war and fascism. I like to put it in this way sometimes. Fascism is a continuation of war by other means, by political means. This is turning upside down this uh, Clausewitz definition of war as the continuation of politics by other means. Right, but it's a much more, it perpetuates a very combative uh, politic in, in a country. Uh, yeah. Would um, would a, a Nazi in the 1930s or the 1940s have been a self-proclaimed fascist? Was it something that you proudly said you were in the same way uh, someone would call themselves a communist? Or was it... Uh, a label given to them by others, but not what they would call themselves. Yeah, good, good question. This, um, of course, one encounters here the same problem of dealing with an ultranationalist phenomenon that is also transnational in nature. That means that all fascist movements in Europe, in all countries, understood themselves as ultranationalists, but at the same time they got ideological inspiration from foreign sources, namely the rise of Italian fascism and later, after 1933, the rise of the Nazis. So, and, and of course, there was, this has been very well investigated in the last 10 years or so by transnational historians and comparative historians who, say, who, who, who see these uh, transnational connections. Um, so, does it respond to? Yes, but would a would a a, a Nazi uh, mm. political party member yeah. have, have called himself a fascist proudly? Um, it depends. It, it happened occasionally. Now, what many fascists in, in or the Nazis in Germany were uh, wary of using that label because, of course, that was a foreign label. Like, so, I mean, in, in Britain, yeah, there was a, 
a fascist party, the British Union of Fascists, that had no qualms in using this label of, of fascist. But in many other European countries, in Romania, Spain, uh, Portugal, even beyond Europe, there was some... Uh, the, the, the leaders of these fascist movements and parties had clear problems using the label the label of of mm. fascist mm. so yeah and this of course was refers to this um, tension between the ultranationalism of the movements and the fact that it was a transnational ideology and phenomenon do you find it strange that communism and socialism doesn't carry the same pejorative connotations these days as Nazism or fascism does. What what sort of connotations? Well, I mean, even at I mean, I went to VCA, which is a part of Melbourne Uni, and you see people going to you know, there's people who advertise Marxist meetings or communist mm-hmm. meetings, and why is it yeah. that the hammer and sickle doesn't disgust us mm-hmm. in the exact same way that the swastika does? Mm-hmm. Well, probably because. Um, both ideologies, well, the two ideologies belong to different traditions. There, of course, there are parallels in the outcomes of these ideologies in specific cases, but communism as a Marxist ideology belong to a philosophical tradition of rational thinking and in, in different ways connected with a very... Uh, long intellectual tradition of the, that comes from the Enlightenment, from the philosophers of the 18th century, from Hegel later. So, and this, of course, this philosophical tradition is respectable. It was a rational um, way of looking at the world. While fascism and particularly uh, Nazism do not belong to that tradition of rational thinking and philosophies. They have connections with what historians call the anti-lumière or the anti-enlightenment tradition of thinkers. For example, Joseph de Maitre, uh, Burke. So these were thinkers in the late 18th century and after that um, were against the changes brought by the French Revolution. They were anti-democratic. They were pro-tradition, pro-the um, monarchy, the idea of God, religion. So fascism, after a very long history, is um, an evolution from those ideas. Now, it's true also, Mussolini was originally a a socialist revolutionary. But it was his reaction against socialism during the, during the First World War what's led to the creation of the fascist ideology. So, um, That's interesting, though. So the, the outcomes are the same. Uh, communism at its worst and fascism at its worst mm-hmm. yield the same catastrophes. But do you think it's that it's, it's quite easy to understand where uh, 
right-wing ideologies and fascism goes too far. As soon as racial superiority becomes an issue, it's very easy to identify uh, that as a problem. Whereas uh, communism and socialism uh, generally, or more communism, I'd say, is uh, cloaked in this facade of academia and it, uh, it takes a bit more understanding to realise where the left goes too far than it does to understand where the right goes too far. Well, um, probably, well, there is, a, of course, a very long intellectual tradition and um, even historians have been uh, inspired by this tradition of uh, Marxist ideology. Marxist, Marx was a historian himself. He, he, what he did was, what he created was a philosophy of, of history. Now, the, the, the connections between Marxist ideology and communism are quite complex. There is a lot of history. There is a, a, a First World War, a, a Bolshevik movement, a Bolshevik reinterpretation of Marxism that um, brought the ideology much further than the uh, social democratic um, movement that uh, was the hegemonic in in the left in the late 19th century, early 20th century. So due to this uh, strength of social democratic thinking, it's usually much more easy for... Uh, it was much more easy for left-wing intellectuals to refer to this tradition that uh, implied did not lead to the horrors mm. that the extreme right tradition led to. Mm. It seemed like a experiment that was conducted incorrectly almost. Well, um, yeah, of course, one needs to situate also in context the, the, the social experiment of, of the uh, Soviet Union and, and later uh, Maoist China. But these were, uh, and of course, and, and from Maoism, there were also different derivations, such as, for example, the Khmer Rouge movement, which led to a genocide in Cambodia. Okay, but um, the uniqueness also of these um, ideologies need, needs to be emphasized. And also the trajectories, the interconnections, the complexity of the ideological ingredients that led to those results. Do you think that Hitler needed the Great Depression to achieve his goals? Well, there was a clear impact of the Great Depression, which was leading to a higher um, level of electoral success for the Nazi party. This was uh, clear the, the, when the Great Depression hit after October 1929. There were elections in Germany, September 1930, one year later. The Nazis got... Uh, a huge uh, amount of votes and and uh, dozens of uh, seats in the Reichstag. So one can see there that the context of the Great Depression led to electoral success, which doesn't mean that automatically in this uh, context German society became inclined to embrace... But it's how Hitler got his foot in the door politically. 
Yeah, it put Hitler in the in the picture and internationally. Although one needs to remember that already there was a totalitarian fascist regime in Europe functioning, which was fascist Italy. So this was rather the turn from um, many admirers of fascism in Europe to look not more, not anymore to Italy, but to Germany as a potential source of uh, inspiration. Mm. I don't know much about uh, economics, so this might seem like a silly question, but was the Great Depression the first big crash ever? And was there a precedent for the Great Depression before that? There there were precedents, yeah. Um, The history of capitalism is quite long. In in the 1870s, there was already an important depression, although it did not lead to such political ideological upheavals as the Great Depression of the 1930s provoked. Is that because the world was a more globalised community at the time that the Great Depression struck? Yeah, that's uh, one of the reasons why. Uh, There was much more interconnection, economically speaking, uh, between different parts of the world by the 1930s. And where did Hitler's anti-Semitism come from? Well, this has been one question for debate among historians, particularly among Holocaust historians. And it's usually said that Hitler absorbed all these uh, anti-Semitic myths during his experience living in Vienna in the early 20th century, around 1912, 1913, before the First World War. Hitler was living there in Vienna, and in Vienna there were uh, already important political parties that were anti-Semitic. Vienna was the capital of this multi-ethnic Austro-Hungarian empire where there were important Jewish communities of very different kinds. And Vienna was somehow the center of this uh, cosmopolitan, educated, modern um, Jewry that that uh, gave humanity uh, Freud uh, and and artists uh, Gustav Mahler etc. All these uh, people were people of Jewish background, Jewish Austrian background. So in this context, is where it's usually said that uh, Hitler learned all these ideas against the Jews, myths such as, well, the, the Jewish world conspiracy, which had been already, it, it had, this, this myth has a very, very long history of centuries, but uh, it was promoted uh, very strongly in the early 20th century with the uh, distribution of the protocols of the elders of Zion, for example, this pamphlet. Um, what was that? What was the protocol of the Elders yeah, of Zion? Yeah, the, the protocols was a, a, a pamphlet, a, a forgery um, that was put together. It's not exactly known who 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 did who created this document, but it came from um, the Russian state, from, from circles of the Russian uh, security. And this was uh, it. It presented. Um, 
well, it claimed to be the minutes of a meeting held by Jewish leaders in which uh, the, the Jews talked about how to, to dominate the world, basically. Wow, I've never even heard about it. The, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Yeah, Protocols of the Elders of and Zion. It, and it was what a, a forged document that pointed to a world conspiracy by the Jews to take over the world. Exactly. Yes, and well, it was uh, proved very quickly that it was a forgery. Uh, it is known where the, the creators of the document copied things from. It was plagiarized, basically, so from... An, or a novel, pieces of a novel of the 19th century were taken and copy-pasted directly into this forged document. But this led to um, controversies, uh, trials, um, debate, and it became a sort of um, propaganda document even for, for the Nazis. Even though the Nazis themselves, Goebbels and Hitler, they, they knew most likely the documents were false, but they still used them in their propaganda because that in created, intoxicated, let's say, the, um, uh, um, the minds of the public and promoted anti-Semitic. They saw in this document their prejudices and their myths about the Jews um, confirmed. So they didn't, they didn't care much about the fact that this was a forgery but it's because it served their purposes. How did we get from uh, 1918 to the Munich Putsch? Or Putsch? And uh, could you just describe the events of the Munich Putsch and what lessons Hitler learned from it? Well, from Hitler, um, in 1919, he's a demobilized soldier in Munich and he, he takes some Sometime until he he develops this his interest in, in politics. This happens when he is uh, asked by by his his officer to monitor uh, meetings of um, an, a, a small political party in Munich, the uh, German Workers Party, the AP, and this was an anti-Semitic. Uh, let's say, sect more than party. So this was the context of, of post-war Germany. There were already paramilitary groups uh, fighting against uh, the threat of a communist revolution. In fact, there is a, communists in, in Bavaria, in the region of Munich, uh, managed to take power for a few uh, days in in the spring of 1919, but this uh, sort of small Soviet uh, republic in Munich is, is put down, destroyed, crushed by German paramilitaries, the Freikorps, which were at the service of the social democratic government of the Weimar Republic. So this is the context where still Hitler has not entered politics. Now, he enters politics later, in, at the end of 1919. By that time, in Italy, there is already a fascist movement, not very successful yet. But uh, Europe, and particularly Central and Eastern Europe, is in this um, context of upheaval, uh, civil wars, etc. 
Now, the Weimar Republic had problems to consolidate, and one of the big issues was to reintegrate um, war veterans, to what to do with all these young men who had come from the war and cannot make a military career because the Versailles Treaty uh, does not allow to Germany to have a, a big army. So in 1920, there is already a putsch, a coup d'etat in Berlin by the nationalist right. And Hitler is already somehow willing to to, to participate in this uh, adventure. So this fails, but uh, still the uh, fastest movement, the, sorry, the Nazi movement, somehow continues um, its activities in Munich. And the putsch of 1920 also leads to, by chance, let's say, it leads to the imposition of a government in Bavaria, a regional government, that is kind of sympathetic to the paramilitaries, to the nationalist right. And in this context also the 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 early Nazi party can uh, continue growing. Now the crucial, in my opinion, as a historian, the crucial uh, process that contributes to the transformation of the Nazi party into a fascist aggressive movement is the successful rise of the Italian fascists during 1921. During this year, in Italy, the Italian fascists systematically destroy socialism, in particularly in the north of Italy, and by mid-1921, the Italian fascists enter the Italian parliament in elections. They are uh, helped by, by the Italian conservatives also in the liberals, but they get into the parliament partially by using violence against the left. In my opinion, and I have argued so in some publications, this is a source of inspiration for Germans and particularly for the Nazi movement. It's at, at that moment when the Nazi party creates the SR, the Sturmabteilung, the paramilitary forces, the, the, black, the brown shirts, which will start imitating the tactics of the Italian fascists, exerting violence against political enemies. This will con contribute also to the rise of the Nazi movement in Bavaria and will lead to this... Uh, attempt to take power in um, November 1923 in the f infamous uh, Beer Hall Putsch. Do you think the biggest lesson Hitler learned from the Beer Hall Putsch or Putsch was uh, that the fascist model, or at least the fascist model of the Italians wouldn't be effective and that he would, in order to take power, he couldn't do it just with violence but had to do it through a legitimate election uh, and political structure. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's correct. Um, Hitler decided that the, the, the party needed to, to follow a legal path towards power 
that was a specific uh, a difference, of course, from from other um, trajectories of fascist movements. So, at the same time, as soon as the Nazi Party was reorganized, the SR, the Sturmabteilung, was also reorganized and it continued operating. We can say that there was a, a sort of dual track towards power, one using violence and the other using electoral propaganda, participation in elections, more conventional uh, means. But when you say reorganize, you mean they were discouraged by Hitler from being as violent as they'd been in the lead, lead up to the Beer Hall Putsch? Yeah, uh, Hitler was reluctant to, to continue trying to promote these, uh, you know, uh, conspirations between uh, paramilitaries, military officers to, to, to participate in a coup, in a coup d'etat. No, that was something that Hitler was, was reluctant. In just purely geopolitical terms, mm -hmm. do you think authoritarianism has many short-term advantages but many long-term weaknesses? I had this conversation with uh, Timothy Lynch from Melbourne Uni as well and we discussed how uh, the sort of enduring strength of America's power is its populations, its own populations, suspicion of that power and that this suspicion of power almost paradoxically yields more power and sustains a country? Well, this is a rather uh, theoretical question. Um, authoritarianism not always has um, short-term advantages. What um, social scientists and some historians can say is that violence and coercion works. I mean, if you use violence and coercion, you, you, you meet your objectives, you, you manage the but um, there are immediate consequences. The main thing is that violence and coercion leads to unpredictable consequences. It's unpredictable what's going to happen if you use violence. But more predictable in some ways. I mean, you even see it at the moment with the relationship between Russia, China and America. America's main weakness at the moment, I would say, is that uh, it needs congressional approval uh, for most of the consequential actions that happen on the geopolitical stage, whereas mm -hmm. uh, someone like Xi Jinping or uh, Putin can uh, act without uh, the acceptance of any other uh, political faction, they can just do what they do what they want mm -hmm. in the short term. Whereas mm -hmm. America is somewhat hampered uh, by the need to get approval from Congress. Yes, of course, um, and that's what well, I'd say is mm -hmm. a short-term advantage, mm -hmm. but long-term. I think it's a disadvantage because your people become disillusioned uh, of course, by their own government. Authoritarianism will never represent the, uh, the, the community. Authoritarianism is in the imposing the will of a specific fraction of a community. It's, it cannot, well, one cannot argue that it presents advantages for a country because within that very same country, uh, important groups are held outside of the political mm. participation. It, help, it helps the party, not the people. Exactly. Mm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. What was the next event on the uh, road to the rise of the Third Reich and the start of World War II? 
So we were in, we, we, we have talked about the, the, the 1923 crisis. Then we, we also talk about the 1920s period of stability, the impact of the Great Depression. The 1930s is a context where things going increasingly bad. And um, one crucial event, I, I think I mentioned it already, was the Japanese invasion of Manchuria. Because this also was a blow to the uh, liberal international order based on the role of the League of Nations to deal with these sort of conflicts. So there are already important cracks, problems with this with this system. So it showed the invasion of Manchuria showed how uh, how, uh, how the League of Nations lacked potency and efficacy. Yeah, exactly, and this will be confirmed a few years later with the invasion of Ethiopia by fascist Italy, 1935. Um, so, and this, of course, is the context of the Great Depression. The Great Depression not only uh, leads to, to a more radical political responses in European countries, both from left and right. Also, it leads to a period of isolationism from the in the United States, less engagement with uh, European problems is the context also of increasing appeasement after 1933, 1935, 1936, up to 1938, the apex of the appeasement policy. There is a clear rise of authoritarianism in all countries. Look at France, for example. 1934, there is a, a clear challenge to, to democracy. There is a riot in, in Paris, in front of the Chamber of Deputies, in front of the Congress, basically. And this leads to, to, well, to, to a new government later, but this was a, 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 an important crisis that the extreme right groups in France instrumentalize in their benefit. So one can see there also a rise of authoritarianism in democracies like France. So, um, of course, after 1936, there is a, a clear path towards armed conflict. The Spanish Civil War during some three years uh, allows somehow to, um, it, it, I like to, to use the expression of proxy war. This is in a sense a proxy war between fascism and democracy and communism. Um, so the Soviet Union is supporting the Republicans because, well, the Republicans asked for help to European democracies like Britain or France, and this help is withheld. They, the Republic does not get the support of other European democracies. So in the end, it's the Soviet Union that gets invested in supporting Republican Spain, while at the same time, fascist Italy and Nazi Germany are heavily involved supporting the Spanish fascists and Franco. In fact, in recent times, uh, more research by Spanish historians uh, has demonstrated that Mussolini 
was involved in the preparation of the coup d'etat of Franco and other officers. So the origins of the Spanish Civil War can also be interpreted through the lens of fascist challenge to the uh, international order. Didn't Hitler even lend uh, the Luftwaffe to Franco during the Spanish Civil War? Yeah, there were advisors. First, there were planes sent to Franco to help him start the war. Mm. And the so-called uh, Condor Condor Legion. Uh, what was the Condor Legion? It was a unit of, uh, of the Luftwaffe, um, of the German Air Force, that participated in in the campaigns against the second the uh, against the republicans and of course the the the, the most known uh, consequence is the uh, destruction of guernica mm. this this small uh, city in the north of spain that was one of the first cities in history destroyed by aerial bombing yeah there's that famous story of the, during the German occupation of France when uh, a Nazi soldier comes to pay a visit to Picasso's studio mm-hmm. uh, because obviously Picasso was uh, being heavily uh, surveillanced by uh, the Nazis mm. um, and the German soldier picks up a postcard reproduction of Guernica and says, did you do this? And mm-hmm. Picasso responds with, no, you did mm-hmm. take it. A souvenir, mm-hmm. sort of one of the great retorts yes. <laughs> yes. Um, by any artist. Uh, okay, so how do we get to uh, from the rise of uh, authoritarianism, not just within Germany but a- across the European continent? What triggers uh, World War Two, and do you think Hitler went into started the war intentionally, or just intended to take Poland and um, mm. without being messed with, so to speak? Well, Hitler from from very early. Had he wanted war, he wanted a war against the mainly about against France, but he envisioned also a war against the Soviet Union to destroy communism, which was one of the the main evils in Hitler's mind, and which he understood as a Jewish ideology. So he also and and other Nazis believed that eventually uh, there will be a war against the United States. Well, uh, the diplomatic history of, of the Nazi regime is quite complex, and, and the foreign policy of Hitler is also quite quite complex. It has been very well investigated, and we know that that Hitler wanted war; that it was not just reacting to to specific uh, situations. Well, some historians have have gone further and and say that everything corresponded to a plan, a preconceived plan by Hitler to, to uh, defeat gradually different countries. And no, in reality, yeah, there was much more improvisation, but still Hitler always was uh, preparing Germany to go to war. In fact, the economic recovery of Germany after 1933 needs to be understood as an effort of the German economy to prepare society for war. So the, uh, the, the um, the four years plan implemented in 1936. So it was uh, something uh, that aimed towards war. Now, the specific way in, in, in which the Second World War started, it, it's a matter of 
international politics and diplomacy. So Hitler, uh, he didn't want to get Germany into a war with two fronts at the same time, East and West. Now, he ideologically and the Nazis, uh, he, they wanted to conquer the so-called vital space, the Lebensraum, this this idea. Is that what it, I always thought it translated as living space, but vital yeah. space is, is the more correct translation, is it? Um, living space, vital space, yeah, both can be, can be valid translation of Lebensraum. Raum is space, Leben is to live. Mm. So, and this was, this was a geopolitical concept developed not by the Nazis, but by German geographers a bit, a bit earlier, but it was reworked in Hitler's mind and among the Nazis as something that, um, uh, as an idea of this uh, huge territory of agricultural land that the German nation and the German race, they will say. And I assume, a, I assume a continuation as well of the idea that uh, fascism glorifies and sees war as a natural state of life. Yeah. Hitler had this social Darwinist idea of uh, the uh, the survival of the fittest. The fittest, uh, I mean, the, the, only the best nations, the best races will, will end up dominating over uh, inferior groups. So all these ideas justified the invasion and con conquest, particularly of Eastern European territories. Eventually, Hitler will go beyond that and and plan for the uh, entire conquest of, of Russia. Now, this was one key strategic objective for the Nazis. At the same time, Hitler also wanted to defeat France. So this is the, the, Western, um, the Western front. So now to, to fulfill this plan, Hitler needed to negotiate, needed to, to plan. And in this context is where this uh, August 1939 pact with the Soviet Union makes sense. Uh, since uh, initially Hitler had planned to 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 defeat to to fight the Soviet Union with the help of Poland, when Poland refused to such ideas, the enemy became Poland. First, Poland needed to be submitted to the will of the Germans. Now the situation was also complicated because. The British and French had also guaranteed that if, if, if Poland will be attacked, they will uh, support. They will support them. So, it's in this sense that uh, Hitler reaches this agreement with the Soviet Union in August 1939, which is a non-aggression pact. It's not such, such an alliance, but a non-aggression pact, even though in that context there, were, there was collaboration between both powers. Did Hitler and Stalin meet personally, or was it always through subordinates? Uh, they never met personally. I think they did never even talked on the phone. Uh, this was the, the Molotov-Ribbentrop 
pact. So the foreign ministers of, of, of Hitler and Stalin met to, to negotiate and, and sign this, this pact. There must have been such a strange relationship between Stalin and Hitler. It was, but of course the, it needs to be understood as a matter of real politic or uh, realism in international relations. Mm, but it just must have been because whether they're good men or not, all the dictators of the 20th century must have been so intensely charismatic uh, and especially in private conversation, it would have just been amazing. No, they, I know they didn't ever uh, meet in person, but I'm even just thinking of, you know, the Potsdam conference and, you know, mm. Stalin and Churchill meeting each other. And it would just be fascinating to be a fly on the wall in those conversations. And Definitely. Well, fortunately, sometimes we have uh, very detailed records of what happened in those conversations, um, particularly for what you mentioned in, in the Cold War era after the Second World War. But we also have some some records of conversations between Hitler and other other leaders. Uh, I'm thinking, for example, on the uh, interviews of Hitler with Franco, for example, or with Mussolini. Hitler and Mussolini had many, many uh, different um, meetings and they have been very well investigated recently. Uh, so... Uh, it's very interesting to see how this relationship, this personal relationship between both dictators evolves over time. At the beginning, it was Hitler, the, the rather dependent on, on Mussolini, particularly because Hitler still had no, no, not that, uh, Legitimacy. not much power. Yeah, mm. and um, early uh, in his uh, regime. So, but later it it was. The other were the other way around. It was just all about Hitler's deciding what uh, he wanted, and sometimes uh, the Italians following. And it was all about Hitler's agency, basically. Mm. While Mussolini lost any any significant agency in the context of the Second World War. There are also, by the way, um, there is a, a recording of Hitler's voice mm. talking to Mannerheim. Mannerheim was the somehow leader or di dictatorial leader of Finland. And this was a conversation that was uh, coverly recorded by a journalist in 19, I think it's 1940, uh, 142. This is that same recording. It was completely off the record. Hitler yep. wasn't even aware of it. And yep. it's the only known... Uh, recording we have of Hitler in conversation as opposed yeah, to... In, in normal conversation, mm. not giving a speech for it's, the public. Yeah. It's, it's impressive, yeah. Pretty strange and mm. creepy. Yeah. It's as well, yeah, uh, exactly, creepy. Mm. So uh, if we fast forward a bit uh, to the Battle of Britain, how dire was the situation uh, when the Iron Pact was signed, Russia and the Nazis dominated the entire European continent uh, and it was essentially down to Churchill uh, versus Europe. Pretty dire, of course. Um, particularly, I will say, because still um, the United States was not willing to, to, to come to, the, to, to help um, uh, the, the European countries, although... It, uh, around that time also started to 
to support economically um, Britain with this land lease agreements, which uh, qualify this this neutrality, this this non-intervention of the United States. So probably, yeah, it's June 1940 and June, July 1940, the moment when um, in the European continent, living outside the, the, the British islands, uh, things look pretty bad. And, and this can be seen also in what was happening in, in different countries of the continent. I, I have done much research on, on the Franco regime and one can see that uh, uh, executions of political enemies um, accelerated in that context in Spain. Since Hitler was dominating the European continent, the Franco dictatorship felt secure to increase the pace of the uh, killing of political enemies that they had in, in prisons in Frankist Spain. So, yeah, probably that year up to late 1940, uh, it's the, the direst uh, moment of the Second World War. How important was Churchill in overcoming that challenge? Well, I will say um, in if we look at the entire period of the Second World War, of course, Churchill was a leader that motivated the resistance, also established a fruitful collaboration with uh, Free France, with De Gaulle, with the United States. But um, in fact, the, the, the much of the fighting against Nazi Germany was conducted by the Soviet Union, which was by far the country that most casualties had, that most suffered. Stalin was constantly trying to negotiate uh, an entry of uh, a, the, uh, the, an opening of a new front in the West to, to, to make it yeah, more likely that the, the, the Soviet Union will be able to fight successfully uh, the Nazis in the Eastern Front. Of course, the Allies uh, took their time to, to start um, to open this, this new front first. They, they, they started advancing in North Africa, then Italy, 1944. Wait, when is this? 1944? Is no, um, yeah, well, first mm. there's a landing in North Africa, mm. Um, and then there is fighting in North Africa, mm. which is not the European continent, but it's just the door to 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 the European continent. And in 1943, July 1943, is the landing on on Sicily by the Allies, the Americans, British, Australians, etc., uh, fighting against. Um, Fascist Italy, the, the, the Mussolini's regime uh, crumbles. Uh, Mussolini was deposed and ousted from power. It's only in June 1944 when the Allies land on Normandy. This is, of course, the Normandy landings are mm. very much um, glorified and mythified, and, but there is a more complex history that leads to this landing. 
And of course, during all this period in the Eastern Front is where uh, really the, um, there is this war of attrition that, um, of course, uh, exhausts and consumes uh, not, uh, the Germans' mm. um, economic and military power. Of course, the war wasn't ended in uh, the Battle of Britain in 1940. No. And, you know, the Soviets lost close to 20 million people, I think, throughout World War II in uh, winning the war. Mm-hmm. But at that moment in the war, if Churchill hadn't been there, if Churchill hadn't been Prime Minister at the time, would the war have been won at least by Stalin and Hitler and then the rest of the world being their chessboard to do as they pleased with? Well, it's difficult to to um, to to reflect mm. against the historical facts. That this, is it though? Uh, I mean, is what if it's, it's difficult always to to say? I will say that there were other powers that need to be placed into the same picture. The United States, in particular, even China. If you, uh, I mean, China was also fighting a very long war against Imperial Japan. Mm. And uh, the United States is supporting the the, the, the British quite early, mm-hmm. even though there's no no this no open declaration of war. Mm-hmm. The United States is still there, so it needs to be taken into consideration. Yeah, the of course the the resistance of the British in keeps the flame alive. I feel of course. Also because, well, uh, Britain and London became the base where many of these countries that have fallen under German domination had their provisional governments and mm. collaboration with the Allies. Mm. So, yeah, that, was, that has been much debated about the, the, how much important was this resistance. Of course, one doesn't... One needs to emphasize not just the, the, the will to resist um, of the British, also German failures in this strategy. Well, it's interesting you say that because that's where I think Churchill's genius shone through was his manipulation of Hitler's ego when the RAF were almost out of planes and yeah. uh, almost being defeated across the channel. Mm-hmm. I think Churchill's decision to bomb Berlin is one of the more genius uh, strategic decisions ever made because then, of course, that uh, drove Hitler uh, to, in a punitive, uh, vengeful way, bomb London, which took the pressure off the RAF and allowed them to revitalise, uh, yep. replenish their, um, their planes. So I've always seen that as one of the pivotal moments, uh, even just objectively, uh, in an objective reading of World War II, you don't need to be a Churchill fanatic or, um, or a Brit to see that as one of the, the, the pivotal uh, moments in the Second World War. But I just find it strange there's, especially today, and I guess it's because Churchill represents, you know, uh, old elitist uh, colonial Britain, there's this resistance to uh, give him his due in what he actually achieved uh, for democracy uh, in the grand scheme of history. I think, of course, uh, historical actors need to be look uh, as with taking into account all the complexity. Uh, of course, 
Britain and Churchill represent that model of society, of empire, the British Empire. That's also another reason why, uh, well, it's difficult to pass judgment about what will have happened if um, the British would have resisted. Will have been possible to uh, develop into a sort of similar um, destructive empire if the British, I don't know, somehow will have evolved in a different way under perhaps under German influence. What what Hitler wanted is to reach a sort of agreement mm. with the British to, to let the Nazis have their own empire in Europe mm. while leaving to the British considered also as somehow as a brother, brothers in terms of racial terms. Um, so in this sense, one it's difficult. It's always difficult to pass judgment. I just think it points to something wrong in our culture at the moment to uh, demonize the man who beat Hitler. To demonize to demonize the man who beat Hitler. Do you think enough people in t- today are well enough educated in history? I think more education about history will be needed. Um, history is of, uh, has always been and should be, should continue being a core subject. But there is, uh, history also changes what historians explain about the past also changes. It's not um, written in stone. History helps us to understand each other, to understand ourselves in the present. So history needs to respond to the uh, questions that we place in the present. That's why there is, of course, always revision, reconsideration, criticism about the past. That's why also understandings of um, political leaders change over time and this is normal we shouldn't be uh, afraid of applying this critical view over the past and changing our judgment Mm. Mm. do you think it's important to understand or important to view the people such as the nazis not as monsters but as humans just like you or i and in other words is it important to understand that this kind of evil can manifest itself in anyone yeah, that's something that I I also teach about the history of genocide and the history of the Holocaust. And I have, a, as a historian, a particular interest in understanding perpetrators of violence, perpetrators of genocide. And of course, the least helpful um, interpretations of violence and genocide are those that just talk or present um Perpetrators as mad as mad people, madness uh, is not the, the factor that leads to 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 massacre or to to violence. It's rather specific ideologies, specific political projects, which lead to those outcomes. So, I think that's what movies set during the war era do best uh, is uh, 
like Schindler's List or The Boy in the Striped Pajamas do such a good job of showing the humanity of the Nazis before they reveal what they're capable of. Mm-hmm. And I often think that those who, well, I guess I wouldn't really know, but I, I always thought that those who believe themselves incapable uh, of the same evil we saw in the Third Reich to be the ones most likely to repeat it. And they're kind of the best candidates, in my opinion, for the next dictator's um, foot soldiers and so yeah that's mm-hmm. why why I asked you the mm-hmm. I think I think it's important to meditate upon our own capacity for evil as individuals it's almost our responsibility to of course mm-hmm. yeah that's uh, has always been there in human history capacity for evil capacity for for good and love mm-hmm. flawed national ideologies don't often encourage ingenuity. Uh, you see this in some of the economic failings of communism, for example, and how countries like China are obliged to steal technology rather than make it for themselves. The Nazis seem to defy this pattern and perhaps that's what made them more intimidating than, other, than any other um, authoritarianism, authoritarian regime in the 20th century. Do you find it strange that uh, the ingenuity and technological brilliance of a country like Nazi Germany could coexist with such a flawed and racist ideology? Well, well we'll need to, to separate uh, two things here. It's not that these um, technological uh, advancements in Germany during the Nazi period uh, were uh, the result or a consequences of the Nazi regime or Nazi ideology. Germany had been for many, many decades, even if you want to go more than one century before the rise of the Nazis, it was already a country with uh, numerous uh, philosophers that advanced uh, Western uh, thought. You had a clear progress in science during the 19th century in Germany. Germany in the late 19th century and early 20th century is the hub of uh, many different sciences and technological um, research, etc. So um, that should be separated from, from what the Nazis did. The Nazis, of course, were able to recruit scientists, but at the same time, uh, they impoverished intellectual life. So in the long term, Nazi Germany will have most probably become a well, more uh, poorer country in terms of intellectual life, science, etc. Authoritarianism and dictatorship and f- um, does not encourage research or critical thinking. Hitler sort of in- inherited uh, great intellectual legacies rather than perpetuated them. Yeah, and there are a few cases that one can point out of, of important intellectual or scientists that embraced the Nazi regime or the Nazi ideology. One, of course, can always remember specific cases. Heidegger, the philosopher, was what well, became a supporter of, of the Nazi regime. Um, but this was clearly not the pattern. The pattern was exactly the opposite. Scientists, intellectuals fleeing this ideology and this regime as they fled other uh, dictatorships in the 20th century. Why did Hitler betray Stalin and open up a, West, a uh, Eastern Front? 
Well, um, this needs to be connected with um, what I mentioned about the, the context of the Soviet-Nazi pact. Now, the Soviet Union had always been the ideological enemy of the Nazis and the fascists. Do you so think the greatest ideological enemy? of? I will say so, yes. There's, um, I, I will I will argue so. Uh, there are other historians that will say that it was capitalism and the United States the greatest enemy. Now, in the case with the case of the Nazis, it's difficult to differentiate because in in their mind, both communism and capitalism were products of the Jewish uh, culture. So, but it was largely um, the Bolshevik enemy, the main enemy of the Nazis. So that's why, well, it's difficult to, to speak about treason from Hitler to, to, to Stalin. This was just a, a matter of convenience to get into this alliance during a brief period. But why wouldn't he have waited until together they had defeated all their enemies before fighting each other. Why did they wait it? Or? Well, I understand why Hitler betrayed Stalin, but why did he do it when there were still other enemies to deal with? Why didn't he wait until Britain had been defeated, until America had been defeated before going against Stalin? Seems like a, yeah, a strategic yeah, yeah. error. Well, Hitler had already this idea that he will eventually defeat the Soviet Union. That needs to be clear. And the other enemy were the allies on the West, particularly France. France is defeated... Britain is still resisting and not willing to to surrender and make any peace with the Nazis. Okay, that's, let's say, September 1940. There is also other strategic movements during the war. And it's at that time that Hitler decides that as soon as possible there will be an attack against the Soviet Union. Now... This cannot be cannot happen immediately. There needs to be a preparation. There needs to be a strategy, a plan, etc. So this takes some time. We we are in 1941. Another reason for attacking the Soviet Union at that time is that the Soviet Union is seen as a weaker enemy, weaker than the United States, clearly. And Hitler and the Nazis believed that they could, with this blitzkrieg, blitzkrieg tactics, to, to, to reach Moscow in a matter of weeks. So one reason to attack the Soviet Union is that once the Soviet Union is defeated, the British will be more willing to surrender and make He'd have peace. more bargaining chips. Once Hitler dominates, then basically... Eurasia, the, the heart of the Eurasian landmass. So in, in terms of strategy, it made sense for Hitler to, to, to attack the Soviet Union as soon as possible. Then there are delays because of other issues. Italy by itself uh, attacks the Balkans and Hitler eventually had to help out Mussolini. That delays for a while. Um, the attack on the Soviet Union. So there are many different uh, strategic issues at play. Also, of course, 
Hitler was already about already thinking about the resolving what he thought was the Jewish problem with the invasion of Poland. Um, millions of Jews had become um, under control of the Nazis, and they started thinking about what to do with this, what they thought they were indecidable population groups. So attacking the Soviet Union was another way of uh, continuing dealing with this issue. Well, there were different projects. Um, it was thought that Jewish populations would be sent to, I don't know, Siberia. There were also plans to send the Jews to Madagascar, so, etc. So Operation Barbarossa would, in essence, f help facilitate the final solution. Yes, definitely. This was the context for the extermination of the Jews. The attack on the Soviet Union was a different kind of war. It was a, a war of a different nature, a war of annihilation of the enemy, where no rules of war were respected. There were the so-called criminal orders given by Hitler and Nazi leaders for the conduct of the German troops in the Eastern Front, um, mass executions, uh, summary executions of suspects, uh, political commissars, Jews, etc., etc. So that context. Well, there are different perspectives uh, by historians. There are some that see more uh, f functionalist historians will argue that well, the context and the dynamics led to gradually to this final solution of murdering every single European Jew, while other historians will say, no, this, we think that this, is, this was the plan from the beginning. Nazi ideology from the beginning was aiming to the entire destruction of the Jews. It's a matter of debate. The consensus today is somewhere in between. There were, of course, important ideological motivators, but it was also a complex context of um, uh, war and um, the de uh, degeneration of warfare, etc., which led to gradually uh, more radical decisions. Mm. The Battle of Stalingrad, in particular, just sounds like the most the worst theatre of war there's ever been. And just like one of the most horrible. How many how many people died in, at the Battle of Stalingrad? Well, um, I don't know the numbers, but of course the entire sixth uh, German army. A sixth of the German army died? The, the sixth German army, I think it was the sixth German army, was entirely wiped out. Uh, Axis casualties during the Battle of Stalingrad are estimated to have been around 800,000. Nearly one million. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Including those missing or captured, Soviet forces are estimated to have suffered mm -hmm. 1,100,000 casualties. Yeah. So not only Germans, also Romanians were there. Um, so, yeah, um, that, of course, that was the, the one of the key turning points. Do, do you think there's a connection between Hitler's germophobia and his desire for racial purity and the extermination of the Jews in a psychological sense? I wouldn't say so. 
I think well that's the the plans for for the extermination of the Jews didn't depend on Hitler's personal yeah, phobias. But he, but he seems physically disgusted, almost like a, in a germ-like way, by uh, the Jew, the Jewish people. That's true. Although I will say uh, those thoughts were rather moved by ideology, anti-Semitic ideology, and by the tendencies of the time regarding eugenics, the development of this sort of science or pseudoscience of the improvement of race. So this mixture of ideas led to this biologization of German anti-Semitism in the case of the Nazis. How would you characterize Hitler's intelligence? What what gave him the ability to rise as high as he did? Well, there is consensus among historians that he was a rather ordinary person. That was no no genius at all, and he was no 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 great student. He read many books, but he read always unsystematically, lazily always trying to find information to confirm his own prejudices. Confirmation bias and stuff. Exactly. And he even seems, Mein Kampf just seems terribly written as well. Yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, it was dictated also to, to, to Rudolf Hess. Uh, so it's just rumbling. So it's, yeah, not very, not very pleasurable read. And Hitler's ideas were mostly based on prejudice, on myth, on irrational thinking and he was not very original in his thinking he did not invent an ideology he just put together different ideas into a ideological cocktail do you think there's well i guess what do you think of hitler's vegetarianism I will say that's rather an anecdote with not much uh, you don't think it was actually a vegetarian impact. No, um, he, he, he was. He also hated uh, smoking, etc. Mm. <laughs> but it's, it's, those are um, anecdotal personal characteristics that had negligible influence mm. over history. So even vegans and vegetarians are capable of the worst evil, is what you're saying, Angel? Why not? <laughs> <laughs> uh, was Hitler close to inventing the nuclear bomb, or was that even a program within Nazi Germany during World War II? There was a point where the Nazis, they had done some research, as far as I uh, know, uh, in, in nuclear science, but at some point, strategically, they need to had to make the decision of which path to follow, whether to continue that kind of research or to develop other weapons. And they chose to continue developing rockets and all that sort of long-distance weapons, but not nuclear bombs as they, they were being developed by the Americans. So that was yeah a matter of choice, a matter of decision. One can always speculate what would have happened, but the history mm. is just how it was. What are your thoughts on the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Well, this, of course, there has been uh, there have been controversies. It's difficult to justify from today's perspective this decision to drop those bombs. They need to be understood as uh, a consequence of, well, a context of degradation of war and the conduct 
the degenerating conduct of war, not only in Europe, in the Pacific context, where Imperial Japan was an extremely aggressive and violent power, committed numerous war crimes, massacres, etc. There's this pattern, but still, the decisions of the Americans were also moved by racism. There was a dehumanization of the enemy in the war fought against Japan. And it was also a matter of very cold calculation, saving American lives to reach a quicker end to the war. Um, even though, well, one, couldn't, one could, could argue that this decision was sort of, um, well, there will be people who will define this as a genocidal policy. He's destroying part of a group, of a human group, including uh, innocent people, etc. So, Because you hear a lot of people will say that, I've, I've had people on this podcast even i mean i understand it is a it's a complex issue but you know people say uh, the fire bombing of tokyo uh, you know took out a hundred thousand people so then what is the difference between a nuclear bomb that does the same thing and you know a thousand um, bombers that do the same thing but the thing that i think the thing that makes hiroshima and nagasaki particularly evil and i i personally consider hiroshima and nagasaki as evil on the same level as uh, the Holocaust, even because I think it takes the same irreverent hatred of human life mm. to vaporize three hundred thousand people with a nuclear bomb as it does to gas six mm. million people. The same kind of evil exists in both actions. What really makes it evil, though, is that it's that diffusion of responsibility. I mean, the bombing of Tokyo is it would be it's a fair battle, in so to say. Do you know? It's how the war has been fought, but the dropping of a nuclear bomb is more akin to a execution. Mm-hmm. in my mind mm-hmm. and that's why I've I just feel like it's the biggest one of the biggest lies that's sort of subsumed into the psyche of the West uh, following mm-hmm. the war of course well this is a, a moral question a matter of ethics um, so there will be people uh, with better tools to reply to this question philosophers etc um, but it's true uh, in terms of evil, the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, yeah, it's as bad as the destruction of people in in, in other cases, in other, uh, even if you want to talk about the strategic bombing of the Allies over German cities. Now, there is also a difference in in the uh, aims of these underlying aims of taking these acts and these actions. It's difficult to compare the Holocaust and the dropping of the nuclear bombs because the objective for the extermination of the Jews, the objective was exterminating that people mm-hmm. entirely. The objective and, of Hiroshima and Nagasaki was to end the war. Exactly. Uh, and after having ended the war, of course, the, the Americans didn't want to to, to, to to exterminate Japanese people. So... That's a clear difference. The same can be applied, the same logic can be applied to uh, uh, the bombing of German cities by the Allies. The objective was not to, to destroy German people. This, the objective was to put an end to the war and to destroy a system of power, the Nazi regime. In this sense, uh, well, if, if one wants to, to make this sort of moral, ethical reflection, 
this this distinctions are important. Mm. But then I guess the question is, why did they drop a second one? Yeah, uh, that's, that's a good question. Mm. Well, they, uh, I guess uh, I, this history probably has been quite well investigated. It was there were many different strategic calculations there. Japan, the, the, the objective was to, to make Japan surrender. But of course, one cannot ignore the factor of racism that led to not even, not just dropping one, but two nuclear bombs on Japanese people. Do you see any patterns of the 20th century repeating themselves today? Um, I won't talk about patterns, but uh, we still live in the same modernity and we still live in the same world. So it's difficult to establish a clear border between the past and the present. There are continuities, ideologies survive, persist, evolve, but they are today connected with the past. And in this sense, I always criticize these attempts to compare things from the present and processes from the present and processes of the past, when in reality what historians should, should try to explain is the continuities, discontinuities, connections, trajectories from the past to the present. I've asked this question uh, of a few of my guests mm -hmm. and it's, I just think it's interesting to get different takes on it. Um, but do you think history moving forward uh, will be characterised by the success of morally grounded and just ideologies and governments or will the worse in us prevail? Um, I think the worst of us uh, will not prevail. That's because it's, uh, well, of course, we, that those uh, e evil tendencies lead to destruction and self-destruction. I wouldn't say it's ideology or morally grounded just ideologies what need to prevail. What needs to prevail is other critical thinking, uh, a democratic context where this critical thinking and debate may take place, dialogue, discussion, free discussion, peaceful, calm discussion, debate, instead of myth, irrational thinking, insulting the opponent, etc. That's, that's, the, that's the issue, rather than the, um, the, the uh, preservation of specific ideologies or political systems. Mm -hmm. Sometimes good ideologies can also lead to but outcomes. It's, it's almost a surprising but encouraging law of the universe that good, uh, whatever that is, in the long trajectory of things does seem to prevail. Um, well, thanks a lot for coming on, Angel, and I uh, really appreciate your time. And uh, yeah. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.